Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're actually going to be in the book of 3 John. We're going to work our way through that. If you're new, uh, just go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then turn left two books, and you'll, you'll find 3 John. Uh, but as you're turning there, let me just say good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be here as a, a guest preacher. I want to bring greetings on behalf of a sister church, Open Door, and also on behalf of the uh, family of churches known as the Pillar Network. I get a chance to serve there. Uh, and it's a joy to come to one of our Pillar churches and to open God's Word uh, with God's people. And so we just want you to know that we're thankful uh, for your partnership in the gospel, uh, this partnership known as the Pillar Network. We're thankful for, for, uh, thankful for your efforts as we seek to cooperate, associate together as local churches uh, around certain core convictions, around certain core doctrine in order to uh, equip, plant, and revitalize churches uh, together. So again, it's a joy to be here and to open God's Word uh, with you. I'm a little bit under the weather. My family would have been here with me, uh, so be praying that uh, I make it through without coughing. But in a Baptist church, nobody sits on the front row, so, we're, <laughs> so we'll, be, we'll be fine. Uh, at Pillar, we believe that, that this work of, of planting and equipping and revitalizing churches is central to the Great Commission. We believe this because we believe that local churches uh, cooperating together to start and strengthen churches is essential because the local church, according to Jesus in Matthew's gospel, holds the keys of the kingdom. And so what Pillar wants to be about is doing this work together around this right convictions or right doctrines, but we want to do this by holding to it in the right way. We, we want to have not just our right convictions, we want to have the right kind of culture. We want to have one that's a culture of courage and also compassion and humility. And we want to work hard at the task that the Lord Jesus has given to his church. So Pillar believes the best way that we can accomplish this work, this task of the Great Commission to start and strengthen local churches is through cooperation or through the associating of like-minded churches in order to start and strengthen others. And this cooperation takes place certainly among sister churches, but it is a cooperation that should take place among the members of local churches as well as we help other churches get started, as we help send out missionaries, we help brothers and sisters and sister churches in the mission of God so that at the end we can see the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I believe that 3 John, again the book that we're going to look at this morning, is very helpful in this regard. A book that hopefully will help us think through and help us shape our convictions, help us sh shape this culture and help shape our cooperation, not just as churches and not just as a network, but also as individual Christians who make up the local church. Now, I want to give a couple of introductory comments about 3 John, but before I do, I just want to see by, by raise of hands, how many in this room have ever heard a sermon preached on 3 John? Just raise your hand. Okay, so for the vast majority of you in this room, this sermon is going to be both the best and worst sermon you've ever heard on 3 John. So I've got a low bar and a high bar to hit today. Just a couple of introductory notes. First, 3 John is the shortest book in the entire Bible. In fact, it's only 219 words in the Greek. Uh, in the ESV app, it takes uh, Kristen Getty of In Christ Alone fame, it takes her two minutes to read it. But because it's so short, some have called it a 
neglected book, even though it's a book that has much to offer to the church, it has much to offer to aspiring pastors, to missionaries, to those who support missionaries. Really, again, it has something to offer to every single Christian. And yet my dad, uh, who has written two commentaries on 3 John, he says this, the church has neglected 3 John for too long and has done so at its own expense. So brothers and sisters, I, I hope that it cannot be said of covenant hope that we neglect third john in fact it's my prayer after studying this book that that covenant hope will be a church made up of christians who are captivated by third john that it captivates who you are what you believe and and how you act in the mission of god because that because of you being captivated by it you will cooperate together as brothers and sisters and you will partner with other like-minded churches so that one day we will be able to look back and say with the psalmist, the Lord has done an amazing thing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, as we turn our attention to this little letter, I want to try to set the context so you can kind of understand what's happening uh, as John writes this letter and as this man named Gaius receives it. I want you to imagine that you are facing serious opposition, serious opposition from a supposed Christian leader, and you're wondering Am I living in a way that honors Christ? Is, is what I'm doing with my, my time and my talents and my treasures uh, for the good of other Christians, is it worthy of Christ? And as you're facing this kind of opposition, as you're wrestling with these questions, along comes a letter from your father in the faith. Along comes a letter from a godly mentor as he writes to you in the midst of this conflict. And this is what the letter says. We know this letter has been written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, but it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's what John says. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all will go well with you, and that you will be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy and to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. And also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to come to you, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we work our way through this letter. Father, we are thankful for your word. And now as we give our attention to it, Father, I just pray that you would 
Use it in the ways you promise, Father, that it would train and instruct us in righteousness. So would you help us now? Father, would you help me preach with confidence in your word for the good of your saints? Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? For Father, we know your word is truth. Help us now as we think on these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up with three brothers, uh, and we fought all the time, no sisters, and so my poor mom basically lived in a male dormitory, unfortunately. And I still remember one of the biggest fights that we ever had. In fact, it was, uh, we were in middle school. It was up at, at an after-school group on the seminary campus there in Wake Forest. My uncle was the supervisor of this, uh, this after-school group. And on that day, we were playing soccer. And for whatever reason, during the midst of this soccer match, me and my twin brother began to get into a fist fight. Now, given how godly I was at 13, I'm sure it was his fault and not mine. But as we start to fight, we fall to the ground, and as I fall to the ground, the brother that's on my twin brother's team, he runs over, and as hard as he can, he kicks me in the back. So what do you think the brother on my team did? He ran over, and he punched that brother in the face. And all of a sudden, all four Aiken brothers are on the ground in a brawl. My uncle used to be an undercover cop, so he loved watching fights, so he just let it happen. Until another adult walked on the field and then he acted all respectable and tried to stop the fight from taking place. You know, I can't help but as I think about those kind of memories, I cannot help but think if my mom's favorite verse might have been sort of an adaptation of Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when the Aiken brothers dwell in unity. You know, the truth is my mom should want her biological sons to play and participate things to, in things together in unity. But how much more so does our Heavenly Father desire it among His children to whom He has given a great mission? We are brothers and sisters. This theological truth is testified to in basically every single New Testament epistle. And part of what we are called to in the New Testament is this participatory cooperation in the mission that God has given to his church. A cooperation that extends and that happens not just through autonomous local churches, but among autonomous local churches as we associate or cooperate or network together for the sake of the name and for the sake of those who do not yet know his grace. Third John, then, I believe, provides us with a picture of the sort of things that both promote, but also the things that hinder that kind of cooperation among Christians and among churches. But Third John does so not just under a banner of New Testament description. It does not just describe cooperation among Christians and churches, but it commands it. In fact, as you saw there in the letter, John says there is an oughtness to this kind of work. And in this book, we're going to see characters and churches who are commendable in this regard, and we're going to see a character and a church who is condemnable in this regard. So I want us to consider this morning who we will be, who we will be as individual Christians, who Covenant Hope will be as a collective, who the pillar network will be in the area of cooperation. And as we work our way through 3 John, we're going to look at what I'm calling the nine C's of cooperation. The sort of things that promote gospel advance among the nations. And we begin with the first two. The first two are this, that we would be consistent in our character and in our convictions. John begins this letter, and as he does, notice his pastoral affection, his pastoral tone. 
He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He says, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. John begins the letter by calling himself the elder, which is intriguing to me. Peter does something similar in 1 Peter 5. He calls himself a fellow elder. I don't fully know why John does this. It could just simply be that he's now pastoring a church, and so he identifies himself in that way. But it just seems interesting to me that these actual apostles, think about John and Peter who were in the inner circle, that these actual apostles who are with the Lord Jesus are happy to recognize themselves in the, in the progress of the New Testament and in God's unfolding plan for the world. They're happy to identify themselves as fellow elders. This at least highlights to me the precious gift that shepherds are, the precious gift that pastors are, and how essential they are for gospel progress. God gives his church as gifts, Ephesians 4 tells us, qualified men to shepherd the flock of God among them for the, for the care of the sheep, for the maturing of the sheep, but also so that through the flock, the gospel would be released. They are equipped for the work of the ministry. And the elder here addresses the recipient of this pastoral letter, this man named Gaius, and he addresses him as his beloved. He calls him his dear friend. In fact, it's possible that Gaius is a pastor or he's a prominent member. The fact that he's receiving a letter from John, the fact that he's one who helps traveling missionaries and so forth, it's possible that he's a pastor and John addresses him with fatherly and pastoral affection. So as we begin the letter, just know who Gaius is. The disciple whom Jesus loved, loved this man named Gaius. And we're going to see why. And John's love for his friend, which he expresses four times in this short letter, is shaped by the truth. It's not misplaced sentiment. It's a love that's rooted in the truth. For it's so true as Christians, we are to be both head and heart people. And this is such an appropriate way for us to think about Christian love and to think about Christian relationships. We who have been loved by God through the work of His Son are now linked in that love. And that love has as its basis, as its foundation, what is most true about the world. It is a great, great gift then that the Lord gives us dear friends who become that to us through the gospel. Now, He not only expresses his love but in verse 2 he gives this brief prayer of a blessing and if you take a second to understand what's happening in verse 2 it's actually an amazing prayer because John prays that Gaius's physical health would match his spiritual health now is that something you would want me to pray over you that your physical health would match your spiritual health you know particularly around the new year we become obsessed with healthy living and by we, I don't mean me, as you can easily tell, but by we, I mean American culture. You know, we're told to, to you know, eat healthy and exercise daily and get lots of sleep. We're told to, to eat organic food, which is just code word for expensive. We're told to eat kale. As Ron Swanson says, that's simply the food that my food eats. Some tell us to not eat processed food, which would mean no queso, and nobody wants to live in a world like that. And some have even begun an assault on bacon itself. We are living in the last days indeed. But we must remember what Paul says in another place. He says that bodily training is of some value. 
fact, these verses here show us that we don't need to overly swing the pendulum in order to combat the prosperity heresies. It is good and it is appropriate for us to desire both the physical and spiritual health of our friends and our family and certainly our fellow members, all the while understanding that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. John wants what's best for this man named Gaius in every way. And that's easy to do because Gaius is a man who is consistent in his conviction and his conduct. He knows the truth. He knows sound doctrine and he lives by it. And he's so consistent in that that John asked for his physical health to match that of his spiritual health. Which leads to the third C and that is children that we should rejoice in and labor for spiritual children. He continues to highlight the consistent character and conviction of guys. He says this in verse 3. He says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is a wonderful spiritual father and pastor. He rejoices at hearing the testimony of some members of his church when they come back to tell him about his friend Gaius. In fact, this reminds me of one of the first pictures of cooperation and kind of inter-church relationship we see in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, as Barnabas is sent by the church at Jerusalem, they hear something's going on in Antioch. There's this church forming in Antioch and they send Barnabas to check out what's going on. And it says when he got there, it says Barnabas, when he got there, he says he saw the grace of God. And it says he was glad. Brothers and sisters, this is the sort of attitude that fosters cooperation for the sake of mission. When we want others to flourish. When we want other brothers and sisters to flourish. When churches are not competitive with other churches, but when they work together and cooperate together for the sake of somebody else. And we can see why it's easy to be glad at the flourishing of this man named Gaius. Because in Gaius' case, he is somebody you might say is well spoken of by the brothers for he is walking in the truth or to say it another way his belief and his behavior match the importance of fidelity in our life in our character and in our doctrine in our convictions cannot be overstated it is necessary for our own lives it is necessary for our reputation and witness it is necessary for cooperation it's necessary for christian leadership Consistently in the pastoral epistles, there is a connection between right belief and right behavior, or the fact that our creed should match our conduct. It's vital to our own Christian maturity, but it's also vital to healthy cooperation as well as model leadership. And upon hearing this testimony, it says that John is greatly joyed. Indeed, John pulls for others. He pulls for those whom he has mentored, whom he has multiplied himself in. And just as those in this room who are parents know that we have great joy at seeing the physical prospering of our own children. I mean, I have a two-year-old little girl. I loved, I loved when she started to walk and I got to see that, even when it was clumsy at first. In much the same way, John takes great joy in his spiritual son. A man whom he has likely played a pivotal role in his coming to faith and has certainly played a pivotal role in equipping him for ministry. We see something implicit in the text here, but we see a 2 Timothy 2-2 ministry. John has multiplied himself in someone who will be consistent in sound doctrine and in sound character. 
Again, this is vital to the cause. It's necessary for cooperation that Christian leaders will multiply themselves. And it's not just the work of the pastor. It's the work of every Christian given to us in the Great Commission. We seek to multiply ourselves in both physical and spiritual children who will watch their life and doctrine and then who themselves will labor in and rejoice over the prospering, for the other, the prospering of others for the sake of the name. We work towards disciple-making, passing on what we have learned and who we are called to be. And that's what we see here with John, which now leads us to the fourth C. And the text pivots a little bit. He, he goes to talking about what Gaius has done. And that leads us to the fourth C, which is care. He now gives an example of why Gaius is commendable in truth and love. And it is one that I hope characterizes every single member of this church. These are amazing verses. Verse 5, Beloved. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. One of the reasons that Gaius is commendable for walking in the truth is connected to his support of missionaries. Indeed, you might say it like this in, in, in shorthand form. It is a faithful thing done by a faithful man for faithful brothers. In fact, he works hard in this effort. He talks about it there in verse 5. It is a faithful thing you do in your efforts. This is this idea of expending a lot of energy, a lot of effort. And this generosity and care for these missionaries spurs on the mission. And we will see in a minute that John likely wrote a letter to the church instructing this kind of labor. And Gaius is a good elder. If indeed he is a pastor, he is a good one. He fits the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 because he is not greedy for gain. Instead, he is hospitable and a lover of good. He is generous not just to his friends, but he's also generous to these strangers who have gone out on gospel assignment. And because of Gaius' care, these unknown brothers, these unknown missionaries, they come back and they add their testimony to John's of the faithfulness of this man and love of this man named Gaius. Now I want you to hear me this morning because I know there's some in this room who likely desire to be missionaries. And I know that Covenant Hope desires to plant churches and to help in that work. We need to see here in the text, we need to see here the role and the importance of the local church of the sending church in the life of those who will be sent out. It's implicit in the text, but if we have eyes to see, we will see that in these verses, we see the central role of the local church that it plays in the life of those who are sent and the role it plays in cooperation and associating. This relationship we've been talking about between churches. These missionaries who are likely missionaries who have been sent out by whatever church John is pastoring, they go out, Gaius helps care for them, they come back, and on the Sunday morning gathering of the local church, as the, as the congregation is gathered, they testify, testify before the gathered church to the great things that have happened among them, which includes the care of Gaius for them. So in verse 6, John says, these type of people, he says, send them on in a journey, in a, journey, uh, in a manner worthy of God. My dad argues in his, one of his commentaries that this worthy of God likely modifies both the work of Gaius and the work of the missionaries. 
as what Gaius is doing is worthy of God and certainly what these missionaries are doing is worthy of God. What we do in caring for and giving to and sending out missionaries is worthy of God and what these missionaries go out to do is certainly worthy of God. The word for send them on here in the text is just one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word propimpo, which carries the idea of being sent on with provisions for the next part of the journey. And that's an appropriate definition for the type of cooperation that Pillar wants to see for church planting and for missions. For what we desire to see all over the world. They'll be sending on people with provisions for the task that they have been given. This is what you have done in helping to support Trail Ross and Pioneer Church in Rock Hill. You have sent him on with provisions for the task. It's interesting because Paul uses this exact same word in Romans 15, 24. He expresses this desire in Romans to come to see the church at Rome so that he will be sent on by them to Spain. It's a wonderful picture of cooperation among churches in the New Testament through the work of missionaries. Romans, then, is not just a theological treatise. It is a missionary tract. Paul writes it. He writes to this church in Rome that, so that he could be sent out by the church at Antioch, come to the church at Rome, care for them, give them some love, mutually benefit from their relationship so that then they will send him on for the sake of the Spaniards. And doing this work, both the work of Paul and the church at Antioch and the church at Rome, all of these things are worthy of God. And the same is true for us. Same is true for your church as you send on pastors and planters and missionaries for the sake of the name. Which leads then to probably the most important C of them all. That's the fifth C, and that is concern for the name or concern for the cause. Look at verse 7 again. They have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Why is what Gaius and these missionaries are doing worthy of God? It is worthy because of the cause that they have. They have gone out for the sake of that name that will be named above all names. They have gone out like Paul and Barnabas out of the church at Antioch to plant churches. They have gone out similar language to Acts when Peter, James, and John go out from the council rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. We do this work, brothers and sisters. We give our lives to this cause. We support others to do. We do this, as you see in the text, not relying on funding from the unconverted. We do this because the one that we go out to serve is worthy of global praise. Which leads to the sixth C. And here we see the command to cooperation, the command to further care. Verse 8, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John says we ought to support people like this. For when you support planters and missionaries, we do so for a purpose, for a reason connected to the cause that we, those of us who help send them, might become fellow workers for the truth. It then is a good saying, right? Not all go, but all help send. And because of the greatness of this cause, there is an obligation to the task. These brothers, these workers have gone out in a sacrificial way for a great task. We then ought to support them in a sacrificial way worthy of that task. And in so doing, there is this tremendous foundation for why we should do it. Because when we do it, we become fellow workers with them and spreading the truth everywhere. In fact, you might just say their victories become our victories. 
All of this is done for the glory, not of ourselves, not for our fellow workers. We'll see this is a temptation in a minute. All of this is done for the glory and praise of somebody else. Cooperation then for the starting and strengthening of churches is not just the work of the planter or the missionary. It is the work of every single Christian. For by so doing, we become co-laborers who are there with them. Just think about it in this terms. If you never go to Rock Hill, South Carolina, but you help to support Trail, you are working with him for the eternal joy of those in Rock Hill. If you never go to South Asia, but you support those who do, you are laboring right now with people who are seeking to share the gospel with 950 million Hindus who worship more gods than we can count. And yet there's only one God that's worthy of their praise. And if we work among those who go to the Middle East, if we support them, we are working with people. We are laboring with people. We have victory with people who right now are laboring among a billion Muslims who fast and give alms and pray five times a day because they think it will make them right with God. And we've come to tell them it is not going to make them right with God and that Allah is not worthy of their praise. But there is a name that is. You know, I've tried to consider how to drive home how awesome and worthy this task is and, and the oughtness of our cooperation in it. And as I did, I kept coming back to this one letter. It's a letter that was written by the great <coughs> Baptist missionary named Adoniram Judson. He wrote this letter, and it'll be on the screen in just a second. He wrote this letter to the man he hoped would become his father-in-law. As he, he, was, he was asking for his daughter's hand in marriage and for her to join him and going to South Asia. And I think it's appropriate given the, the theme of cooperation. Because this, this man, Adoniram Judson, would end up rallying Baptist churches to come together to cooperate. And that rallying together would actually end up leading to the cooperative effort that we know now as the Southern Baptist Convention. And here's what he wrote to his soon-to-be father-in-law. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to de degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. And then he gives a gospel motivation. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. The reason that's so hard for me to read is because the day I copied and pasted that into my manuscript, my two-year-old, she was sitting in front of me play-typing on the computer because she wanted to be like her dad. And I'm absolutely convinced that he who left his heavenly home is worthy of her life. And I'm absolutely convinced he is worthy of your life. 
And I'm absolutely convinced that the cause that he has given to his church is worthy of us sacrificing so that we can be a part of it. Now, the letter takes a sharp turn. It's been highlighting, I think, what promotes gospel cooperation. Now, it highlights what can be a hindrance to that. And that's the seventh C. And I had to stretch a little bit to keep the alliteration. But the seventh C is that we would not be conceited. He talks about this man. I'll just read it. Verse 9, he says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. We are introduced to this man named Diotrephes. We don't fully know who he is. We don't know if he's a fellow elder with Gaius. We don't know if he's another prominent pastor nearby. We don't know if he's just an unruly member that has a lot of power and clout. But we see another facet of John's pastoral care here in this text. Because now we see how John is going to deal with wolves. He's apparently written a previous letter to the church commending the supporting of gospel workers, but Diotrephes has ignored it. In fact, John says he does not acknowledge our authority. He likely sees John's authority as a challenge to what he perceives as his own authority. In fact, there's a reason he doesn't acknowledge John, and the reason he doesn't acknowledge John is that he wants to be first. They actually could read something like, he desires to have preeminence. So he will have nothing to do with John or his missionaries. In fact, Diotrephes stands in stark contrast to Gaius. Gaius welcomes the brothers, Diotrephes does not. Gaius loves to serve, Diotrephes loves to be first. And whereby we kind of see that charity and humility promote unity and cooperation, competition and pride are great obstacles to gospel partnership, massive threats to it. Diotrephes is like the Pharisees. He loves the seats of honor. He is about his name and not the name. He's about his glory and not the king's glory. He wants the spotlight, right? He wants to be on the platform. He wants the following. He wants the numbers. He wants the recognition. He wants the seat of honor. Brothers and sisters, we must not confuse zeal for the cause of Christ with personal ambition. If we evaluate ourselves in light of God's grand mission and God's great grace, if we will allow, evaluate ourselves in that way, it will humble us. We must have sober judgment of ourselves. We must not think more highly of ourselves in God's work than we ought. Paul tells us in another place, we are simply jars of clay. We are servants to whom God has given a great treasure. It seems instructive to me that in a letter where anonymous brothers are commended because they've gone out for the sake of somebody else. That this man named Diotrephes is condemned because he wants so badly to be recognized. He so badly wants the preeminence that he, he badmouths John. In essence, Diotrephes becomes an accuser of the brothers. And not content stopping there, he actively works against these gospel workers. And not content stopping there, he actually excommunicates those who have supported the missionaries. Those who have become those fellow workers for the truth. He puts them out of the church. For our application purposes this morning, I would just say this. The spirit of Diotrephes. The spirit of Diotrephes is one that is content in stopping gospel work that does not bring one's own self-glory. The spirit of Diotrephes might be one that's content with, with gossiping 
subtly tearing down others in order to make ourselves look more important or to feel better. Brothers and sisters, humility is a humility is massive to the cause that we have been given. That's why Satan so often tempts us to pride. It's my prayer that we will remember that in a selfie culture, that God is pleased to humble the proud. And God is pleased to, to raise up the humble. May we be people who are marked by humility. In light of this, John then gives an exhortation to Gaius, and this leads us to the eighth C, that we would be commendable. He says in verse 11, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. He wants us to see, John wants us to see the dichotomy between the faithful and the unfaithful. He wants us to walk the path of the faithful. He's possibly worried that Diotrephes' example will deter or even kind of push Gaius off course. So he says, in keeping with Paul in other places, he says, imitate what is good. For by so doing, you will reveal which path you are on. Whether you are from God or sadly, as with Diotrephes, it is likely you do not know him at all. And in contrast, John now turns to another commendable character one who some scholars believe takes the letter to Gaius, this man named Demetrius, and it says this, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. This man, Demetrius, only gets one verse in the entire Bible, and yet what a verse it is. Demetrius is possibly a missionary himself, and John is saying, you ought to support men like this, or he is one who has supported missionaries in a generous way, and John is saying, imitate him. Either way, he is an example worthy of our imitation, unlike Diotrephes. He's so different than him. Because unlike him, instead of denying the brothers, he is well spoken of by them. In fact, he's received a good testimony from everyone. He is also consistent in his creed and conduct. He has received a good testimony even from the truth itself. And John adds his testimony and the way he words it, he seems to be saying, guys, you know, I don't just throw around a commendation like that lightly. Again, for application purposes, John is seeming to say what we might so often say today. You know, so-and-so is such a good brother. You know, so-and-so is such a sweet sister. And again, for our application purposes, let's just say this. Commendable brothers and sisters are easy to partner with. So may we be those kind of brothers and sisters who are consistent in our doctrine and consistent in our character. For it will reveal here, it says, whether we are from God or whether we do not know him at all. John concludes the letter as he began. He concludes with hope and another brief prayer. Verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Basically, John is saying, and this was, this was me in high school. He's saying, guys, I've just given you the cliff notes. I have much more to say. But when I come to deal with diatrophies, I would rather have the physical presence of my dear friend. And then he concludes this small letter with a brief prayer of a blessing of peace. And then he says, and it's the only time in the New Testament that believers are called friends. And again, hear the pastoral tone of John, this personal nature of his pastoral ministry. He says, the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. So in light of 3 John, just Five quick practical applications. Number one, help covenant hope plant and support healthy churches. Again, this is central to the Great Commission. Through the work of this church and pillar, help us send missionaries to plant healthy churches everywhere. Because the 
The Lord has chosen the local church as his vehicle by which he is accomplishing his purposes in the world. And so we want to establish those outposts all over the world. Number two, pray regularly for missionaries and church planters. Pray for those whom you support. Get to know them. Three, go on a mission trip. You'll get a sense of the need. Number four, give to the mission of this church and for the cause of missions around the world. Again, there is an oughtness to this work. How you do that is up to you and to your conscience, but there is an oughtness to this work. Five, find practical ways to care for missionaries and church planters. But finally, I would say this, look to the final C of Third John. This is an amazing short letter, but it's an interesting one. There are main characters like John and Gaius and Demetrius, even this, this bad character named Diotrephes. But for a New Testament letter, one obvious one seems to be missing. In fact, he is a subtle character, never mentioned by name in the book. And yet he is the very one who gives us the example to imitate these eight marks. But more than that, he's the one who gives us the power and the forgiveness when we fail to do them. We've sang about him today, but we have a great high priest whose name is love. We have a great high priest who has made us, as Gaius is to John, he has made us like that to the Father. He has made us beloved. We look to the one that Jude tells us, and I love this given the wording here in 3 John, but Jude tells us we think about consistent in conviction and conduct. We look to the one who is able, it says, to present us blameless before the presence of God's glory. Think about that. He has no greater joy than to know that his children are walking in the truth. And yet he has the power to make us walk in the truth. The one who would go out for the sake of the name, doing the works of the one who had sent him. The one who would provide for his workers, his laborers. He would provide for them all that they need. Second Corinthians would tell us about him that though he were rich, he would for our sake become poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. He is the friend of sinners. He is the prince of peace who appears in the midst of his brothers after the resurrection. And he says to them exactly what we see in verse 15. He says, peace be to you. And we are his sheep who go out for the sake of his name to be fellow workers for the truth. And ultimately, the truth is not a set of propositions. Ultimately, the truth has DNA and a blood type and the truth has a name. Jesus of Nazareth, who has thrown down the accuser of our brothers at the cross, as hour after hour, the judgment of God due sins would touch down upon this sinless one. He would become our sin bearer, taking the place of the guilty. And what he was doing there was taking away the, the weapons of our enemy. He was taking away his weapons of accusations so that now, after we have received Christ's righteousness, Satan's accusation have become like diatrophies in this text. Satan's accusations against us have now become wicked nonsense. And he has dealt with the final consequence of sin. He has, he's dealt with death itself. As on the third day, he was raised from the dead in vindication and he is now forming a family of brothers and sisters that we call the church who will send out fellow workers all over the world to carry this great news. And hear this, brothers and sisters, he and not Diotrephes and not us, he will have the preeminence. He will be first. But what's amazing about him who 
deserves all preeminence is he is the very one who has shown us the way of humility. As this sovereign would become a servant of all. I love this poem that captures it so well. It it captures the dichotomy between Jesus the servant and Alexander the Great. And I pray that this will help us be distinguished from diatrophy. Here's what it says. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seen. The other but a loss. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon. One died on Calvary. One gained all for himself. And one himself he gave. One conquered every throne. The other every grave. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. I don't know if you're, anybody in this room is, is an unbeliever, but I want to share with you the gospel message this morning. This humble king is able to give you all that is rightfully his. He's able to give you a righteousness that's not your own. He's able to transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. All you have to do to take hold of what he has done is to turn to him, to humble yourself, repent of your sins, and place your faith and trust in him and him alone. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you after the service about what that means. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this text, we just need to think about what an immense privilege it is to serve this king and to do so together as brothers and sisters. My brothers and I got into it a lot growing up. I'm fairly certain we won that fight, by the way. (laughs) But today, I'm incredibly close with my brothers. We talk almost every single day. They're all in gospel ministry. And even though when we were growing up, we were really competitive with each other, today, in fact, I do almost everything I can to make sure my brothers flourish. I would just appeal to you this morning that if that's true for biological brothers, how much more so should it be true that for those of us, as Aristides says of us, who are brothers not bound by blood ties alone, but who are brothers after the Spirit and because of God. I don't know what's going to happen because of third John type cooperation among Covenant Hope and Open Door and so many other churches that make up the pillar network. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it would be that years from now there's a pillar network in somewhere like Saudi Arabia or North Korea thinking through 3rd John and how they may send out their kids for the sake of our grandchildren. We do not know what will happen as a result of our 3rd John cooperation. What we do know is this. It will be worthy of God because we will be fellow workers for the truth. And the truth has a name. Jesus of Nazareth, the friend of sinners, who knows his sheep, and he knows them by their name. Let's pray and ask that God would help us. Father, thank you for your word. Again, we know that it is both able to make us wise unto salvation and to train and instruct us in righteousness. And Father, I pray that you would use the preaching of your word, the fellowship of the saints, the singing, prayer. You would use all of this to to train and instruct us. Father, I pray that you would use all of this to change us from one degree of glory to another. Thank you for these sweet brothers and sisters. I just pray that uh, your word has both been uh, a challenge but also a comfort.
Father, for those in this room that need to be convicted, I pray that you would convict them. And Father, for those in this room that need to be comforted, Father, I pray that the God of all comfort would provide that comfort. Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus who has succeeded where we fail, and we're thankful for his forgiveness. Father, as we think on the gospel, would you make us more and more like Jesus? And then, Father, may we be those who work hard at cooperating with other brothers and sisters for the sake of the name. Thank you for this time. We're, we're thankful as we think on the gospel that you and your kindness would set your affections upon us. And Father, we're amazed that you would use us, jars of clay, to carry about this great treasure. May we be found faithful until we see you face to face. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.